High-profile immigration cases recently have led to accusations of political interference. So, is it time for change? Insight investigates calls for greater distance between ministers of the Crown and immigration applications. In the year to June, roughly 275,000 non-New Zealanders migrated to this country to work, study or to live. For many who step off the plane and come through the airport, it will be the start of a new life. But for others, the move won't go according to plan, and they may well end up appealing immigration decisions or putting in special requests to the minister to be allowed to stay. But a series of high-profile immigration cases involving ministerial decisions has raised questions over the impact of political influence. Figures released to Insight show at least a third of all ministerial requests in the last two years involved lobbying by MPs. I'm Philippa Tolley, and this Insight explores if there needs to be more independence and transparency in the process. <laughs> It's a Tuesday night at the Wellington Community Law Centre, and that's a time when anyone can come along and get advice on immigration matters. Several dozen people, many with family, are waiting their turn. Ina Zadarojnaya is a senior lawyer at the Community Law Centre and explains what help is on hand. We could offer two types uh, of help, really. On a general basis, we offer information, not necessarily advice, straight advice. So on Tuesday night, people would normally get a referral to another lawyer, for example, or they get an information on how to respond to immigration issues on a particular matter, uh, or we um, could help them, so if they fall within our criteria. Um, Ina Zadarojnaya says the range of people they can offer help to is strictly limited. The focus of our service is on the refugee family reunification, so mainly the ongoing clients that we would take on and represent. Many of the cases from a night like this end up with Immigration New Zealand, the government agency responsible for immigration decision-making. If individual applications are turned down by Immigration New Zealand, people are left with the choice of appealing to an independent tribunal or making a special request to the Minister or Associate Minister of Immigration to intervene. A legal academic, Dr Caroline Sawyer, believes the system in New Zealand works in much the same way as those operating in countries with similar legal systems, like the United Kingdom and Australia. I think structurally the systems are all fairly similar, but one thing that's outstandingly noticeable about New Zealand is the, the, the sheer number of applications really outside the process to the minister and the often very good relationships between immigration lawyers and immigration advisers and the minister. So a, a lot of applications are considered outside the process. And the advantage there for the clients is that you get a more tailored decision. You might get more uh, sympathy or compassion and more toleration of odd circumstances. When I became minister, one thing I actually did was, because I thought there could be a perception um, potentially of bias, I was very clear that I will never consider Auckland Central cases in particular. As the Associate Immigration Minister, Nikki Kay considers most applications where people ask for ministerial intervention because their case falls outside of normal policy. This typically happens when people might need a waiver because their age, English language skills, character or health do not meet the usual requirements. Applications can also be made by people under a policy known as Section 61, where people have no legal right to be in the country and therefore have no way of making a normal application through Immigration New Zealand. About 14,000 such applications are made each year. 
There is no obligation for requests to be considered, but many are, and roughly 60% are then granted. But as a legal expert from Waikato University, Doug Tennant explains, the details of decisions made under this section are pretty limited. The absolute discretion means there's not a requirement to consider the application and there's not a requirement to give any reasons. Now, under Section 61, the Ombudsman has been very involved in that and has expressed concern about the lack of um, giving um, decisions or any sort of um, uh, any sort of written decisions. So, so on the basis, there's there's a lack of accountability. As a result of the minister of the intervention of the ombudsman, that has changed. That has changed slightly. So, under Section 61, there is the requirement to give reasons in a very limited manner. While the minister still does not have to provide details, officials who deal with the majority of these cases now do keep a brief record of the reasons for their decisions on file. But the ministerial route isn't the only option available. There is also an appeal body known as the Immigration and Protection Tribunal, which sits under the Ministry of Justice. No one from the ministry would speak to Insight about the role of the tribunal. Instead, it provided a written explanation. The Immigration and Protection Tribunal is an independent body established under the 2009 Immigration Act to hear appeals and applications regarding residence class visas, deportation, including appeals on the facts and humanitarian grounds, and claims to be recognised as a refugee or as a protected person. If you do not agree with the tribunal's decision, you may be able to appeal to the High Court on a point of law or ask the High Court for judicial review, but only if you can show the tribunal got something wrong. The Justice Ministry says 16% of the applications declined by Immigration New Zealand are taken to the Tribunal on Appeal. From the end of 2010 until April this year, that's nearly three and a half years, the Tribunal received just over 1,900 residence appeals. But in the last year alone, there have been more than 1,000 requests to the Minister and 1,200 the year before, an indication of just how central the ministerial request route seems to be. A legal academic, Caroline Sawyer, explains how the role of the ministerial request is not the last resort, but instead runs alongside the tribunal process. The place of the minister is, is parallel to that. The minister deals with people who there isn't a mechanism in the process for them to uh, apply for a visa. So, for example, if somebody is here in New Zealand unlawfully and they have no right to apply for a visa but they think they should stay, they can apply to the minister, and it's not like technically an application, it's a request. The minister doesn't have to consider it. The minister has absolute discretion. There are no rules as to the decision the minister might come to. But the minister might be influenced, for example, by a local campaign that these people should stay, or um, that there have been a few notable ones of those in New Zealand. But the heavy involvement of MPs in the process starts much earlier with a significant proportion of cases in some electorates relating to immigration queries. Labour's immigration spokesperson Trevor Mallard estimates that at times up to 50% of the caseload in his electorate office is made up of immigration-related issues. The head of the Internet Party, Lila Hare, says she's also aware of some electorate offices dealing with large numbers of immigration cases. June Ranson is the chair of NZAMI, the Professional Association for Immigration Advisers. She says for many people, turning to an MP is a pragmatic decision. When the constituents go to their local MPs, it's quite often that they've tried to do the application themselves. And they turn to their local MP for, well, they feel they're not going to have to pay for anything. And they are looking for that guidance and assistance. 
Those inquiries then often lead to MPs making representations to the Minister. Laila Hari regards a system where a Minister of the Crown is a final point for decision-making as inherently politicised. This is an extraordinary administrative process that we have, which sees a minister assigned a, a final decision-making role. It doesn't exist in any of our, our other administrative processes. Well, there may be others, but it's certainly the exception rather than the rule. And the potential for the wrong reasons to get somebody in front of the minister rather than the right reasons... I think is very great. I mean, even if the minister is able to apply good reasoning to their decision, so much of the process depends on whose case gets in front of the minister in the first place and gets the minister's attention. And that's often the role of an MP, is to get the minister to pay attention to this case. Now, I don't think that people... If they have rights in the system, and I believe they do, should have to depend on political advocacy to have those rights properly considered. The Waikato University law lecturer Doug Tennant also has worries about the equality of representation. He says someone who is facing deportation, not allowed to work and with no access to legal aid is likely to struggle putting together a convincing case. If you don't make a solid submission, basically the chances of ministerial intervention are very limited. Now, my view is, if you're doing these, you've got to one, do a very detailed submission and get the support of a local MP. If they try and do it themselves and they don't have adequate representation, they won't do that, and they won't articulate the important points that will sort of capture the, the thinking of the minister and his or her officials. When Insight asked for information about representation from MPs to either the Minister or Associate Minister of Immigration, the Minister's office replied there was no formal record kept of all interactions and instances of MP advocacy. However, Insight was able to discover under the Official Information Act that the Minister or Associate Minister was lobbied by MPs in writing 751 times in the past two years. That figure amounts to about a third of all ministerial requests in that time. The Green Party's immigration spokesperson, Jan Logie, has worries about influence in a country as small as New Zealand. It has to be said that we are seeing at the moment what is looking increasingly like two sets of rules. One for the wealthy, and we've had some very notable high-profile cases where it looks as if people's wealth or influence has enabled them to fast-track and get rights to settle, when we are, on the other hand, seeing people who are looking for safety and the basic protection of their lives who are not getting the protections offered by New Zealand, and that, to me, is just wrong. Its high-profile cases and allegations of political influence in cases such as Kim.com, whose residence was approved by officials, and that of Dong Wa Liu, whose residence was approved by the then Associate Immigration Minister, Labour MP Damien O'Connor, that have prompted the leader of the ACT Party, Jamie White, to take to his blog. He's been arguing the need to separate MPs for any part of the immigration process. I'm don't think that government ministers or politicians should be in any way involved in making decisions on individual cases. The proper role of politicians, and this is a general point, really, it's not about immigration in particular, is that they set up the rules, but they don't then administer the game. 
They don't, they're not the referees in the game, they're the designer of the rules. And the reason they shouldn't be the referee is because everybody's got an interest in lobbying the referee. You know, that this is what happens in sport, it's what happens in politics. If you've got rich people lobbying the referee, politicians in this case, people can only imagine that, uh, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of situations arising. And it's not just that it undermines the integrity of the immigration system, it potentially undermines public confidence in the whole democratic system because people will suspect that there's undue influence of wealthy people. And it's that perception, how it looks from the outside, that seems to cause many to be worried about involving a minister in the process. Nikki Kay acknowledges there may be perceptions of undue influence. I definitely understand because of, because of a number of high-profile cases over successive governments um, that some people will think that there is special treatment there, even if they don't realise that any individual can request an intervention from me. I understand that that perception may be out there. And legal academic Caroline Sawyer says the current system lends itself to an interpretation that the minister involved might be able to make things up as they go along. Because you can't see why the decision went the way it did, definitely it's, it's not transparent in the in individual case, but it leads to a general lack of certainty as to if you ask the minister for a decision, what decision you might get. And so it feels arbitrary and very uncertain. There is support across the political spectrum for an individual to have the power to consider cases that fall outside the normal policies and also for that position to be able to operate with absolute discretion. Labour's immigration spokesperson Trevor Mallard is comfortable with ministers having absolute discretion even if they don't have to set out the rationale for their decisions. I think it is, in the end, you know, relatively transparent. You know, while personal details are not made available, they are often very important uh, to individual cases. You know, we, uh, there are lots of things often to do uh, with abuse, to do with uh, employment relationships, um, to do with family circumstances, to often to deal with errors that have, were made 20 years ago. I mean, I've... I've had cases of people who thought that they were New Zealand citizens and have thought that for 20 years uh, and, are, and are not. Um, and theoretically, those people should be sent home. Um, and I think you do need a system for dealing with hard cases. And I think um, a person, in the end, has to say what is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. The ability to make discretionary decisions is also important to the Associate Minister, Nikki Kay. However, alongside this, she recognises the importance of having a system that can be trusted. The integrity of the process matters. Um, so, you know, we have, I think, um, pretty robust systems. I think people can argue about whether they think the policy is right, right, whether members of parliament or ministers should be involved in those individual um, situations. But, I, you know, what I am confident of is for the system that we've got, we've got reasonably robust processes. The second thing I'd say is I don't think, even if you might not support ministers or MPs being involved um, in particular cases, uh, what I would say is you've always got to have discretion within the system. From what I have seen, there are some very exceptional cases. And when you're dealing with um, an immigration system that might consider tens of thousands um, and you know, some, in some classes possibly uh, over 100,000 types of 
decisions being made, then I think it's very important for there to be some form of discretion in the, in the system. And I think that we, as long as we have robust processes and integrity of those processes, then the system can work. The debate of whether ministers or MPs should be involved, I think, is something that different caucuses will consider. While Lila Hare acknowledges the need to have someone to consider those cases that fall outside normal policy, she would like that person to be someone other than a minister. I think the objection is to who is exercising the discretion and the potential for pressure to be brought through political relationships on the outcome of the case. There is no particular reason why a Minister of Immigration is in any better position to exercise a discretion applying good values and ethics than a person appointed for that purpose and with those skills and qualities. Ministers change. The reason why people are appointed into ministerial positions varies. I think we could have a far more reliable and consistent process without ministerial engagement. And I also think that that would remove perceptions of political influence or favour peddling from our immigration system. And that is a real problem of perception. And that's a point of view that's supported by Axe Jamie White. He acknowledges that no set of rules will be able to cover the whole range of cases and there is a need for discretionary decisions to be built in. But he argues that power does not need to be exercised by a politician. It has to be exercised by somebody mature, with good judgment, experienced in the system. Uh, That's often very unlikely to be a politician, actually, because think about how somebody comes to be the Minister of Immigration. They, they may have no history of involvement in immigration at all. Their last job may have been being Minister of Foreign Affairs or you name it. They're not necessarily experts. Jamie White would like either an independent figure to be appointed to exercise discretion in particular cases or for the Immigration Tribunal's powers to be extended in some way. But Trevor Mallard believes it will be difficult to make another system work despite what he calls its superficial appeal. It's very hard to have someone who was given the authority to make decisions outside of government policy. If you're setting up a commissioner, you've got to tell them absolutely what the government policy is and to get them to stick to it. And that means that I think a lot of individual circumstances, a lot of compassionate reasons, a lot of employment reasons, I mean, a number of cases that I deal with involve the migration of people who can unblock jobs, who can create a lot of jobs for New Zealanders, but they don't quite fit the criteria. If you had a commissioner, you'd have to give them policy, and therefore the exceptions wouldn't work. And immigrants arriving in Australia and wanting to stay will face a similar system where ministerial interventions are possible in cases that fall outside of normal policy. A Sydney-based lawyer specialising in immigration, Lorette Chow, explains the process. In most instances, the only access to the minister is if you've made an application and it's then been refused and you've made an appeal and it's been refused. So what people do is they still put on a type of application which um, unfortunately is bound to um, be refused um, just to be able to access the minister.
Although there are instances where the system is played to get a case in front of the Minister, Lorette Charles says the numbers that are actually considered fluctuate considerably over the years, depending on the current immigration environment. Overall, it's a small percentage of the total number of cases that end up being considered at this level. But Lorette Charles says the system in Australia does include some requirements for greater transparency. The Minister's powers are basically non-reviewable. He's able to make any type of decision, but he does publish guidelines. The Minister um, publishes guidelines as to the type of decisions that they are prepared to consider. There are statistics published which say under which sections of the law the Minister has considered requests for intervention and it goes down to details of the country, of citizenship of the visa applicants. Even this system has come under scrutiny with an Australian Senate Select Committee report on ministerial discretion in migration matters in 2004. It recommended taking steps to improve transparency and accountability and for the government in Canberra to establish an independent committee to make recommendations to the minister. The Australian government's response was to enhance transparency, but it rejected the idea of an independent committee, stating the recommendation was not appropriate. But transparency is the key to improving matters, as far as the Green Party's spokesperson on immigration, Jan Logie, is concerned. I think there is a need for more transparency, and we have been hearing that call. And it is interesting to note, and talking with people that have been involved in immigration for a long time, that there's massive differences between different ministers and even within one government, <laughs> um, between how many appeals would be granted or denied, and people definitely talk about some ministers having been really tough and others not so tough. And we have no way, except for that anecdotal evidence of people working in that field, to monitor that. So I do think there would be in value in having a published account of the number of applications that go to the minister, the numbers that are declined and the numbers that are granted, so that we could track that and work towards more consistency. For others, though, the strength of character of the minister who is making the decision is key. Nikki Kay says it's an indication of the resilience of the system that the number of approvals while she's been in office is on par with those made by her predecessor. Labor's Trevor Mallard says the individual concerned has to have the courage of their convictions. In the end, the Prime Minister's got to make sure that the person who is doing that role has backbone. No, the Prime Minister must have faith in the person to make appropriate decisions, decisions which are fair and as consistent as they can be, given the variety of facts in different cases. Uh, if you have someone who's just going to fold uh, to campaigns, to political campaigns or media campaigns, uh, then they're the wrong person to have in that role. So that position needs somebody who's staunch? Well, the, the, the position is someone, is always someone who's got to be staunch uh, because otherwise you just say yes to everybody and therefore there'd be no point. And the New Zealand First Leader, Winston Peters, is another who believes it's essential the person making the calls is up to the job and can resist any outside pressure. As the Foreign Minister and as the Treasury Minister, I've had people literally lob me in that way on the basis of this project in my electorate and so on, so and you've got to say to them, so you're, you're asking me to hang myself for a project that's faulty. 
that's flawed, and I'm sorry, I can't do that. You've just got to make a stand, because in, at the end of the day, what will matter is the integrity of the whole administration of which you're part, and your failure to act in the, for the, uh, in the interest of that administration's integrity will sooner or later come home to see you, as you've seen countless times. But he's less than complimentary about the ability of some of those who've been asked to make the decisions over the years. The trouble is now we've got associate ministers who've been here five minutes, got no experience, <coughs> no um, street experience, and when they see an application that should be, you know, all red flags flying everywhere, they don't see anything at all. And as a consequence, they do things and stop people. The Sydney lawyer, Lorette Chow, acknowledges that such requests in Australia can be affected by who's holding the portfolio. The fact is that it does come down to the particular minister, so that in itself can be, from a visa applicant's perspective, quite um, challenging. A person can be waiting for a minister to um, consider their request over a period of years, and during that time um, there may be a change of government, or even within the same government, a change of, of um, ministers, who, um, individuals who hold the portfolio, and because they've got such full discretion, it is a matter that is, to a large degree, unpredictable. Ms Chow says she's had clients who've waited three years and experienced four different individuals holding the portfolio in that time. Nikki Kay's office says on average requests here get dealt with in about four months, although there are cases that, by their very nature and complexity, can take a while. But it seems the New Zealand system isn't necessarily set in stone. The Associate Minister is confident in the process as it is, but she says she's also open to suggestions that might improve it. I would consider that if someone put to us you know, the, uh, particular policy suggestions that could make the process more transparent as a caucus, we would consider those. I don't think it's the case that we're saying that this process can't be improved and that it can't be changed in the future. I think it's more that... I think there are a few, few principles that, that need to underline the system in the future. One is um, that you do have discretion in the system. Um, whether people believe that's ministerial or some other um, way, that discretion, in my view, needs to exist. The second thing is that for the system that we've got, I think it is um, pretty robust. That doesn't mean there couldn't be future policy changes to make it more transparent, but I think people need to come up with them. And I do think there is a bit of a misunderstanding in terms of what already exists, like people being able to get their file, like um, members of parliament, often opposition MPs, having access to a file if they're advocating. The Community Law Centre lawyer, Ina Zadarojnaya, says her own thoughts are that many people believe contacting someone associated with government will really make the difference. I think in terms of people approaching MEPs, it's not necessarily always that they can't get help somewhere else. It's just they see it as an opportunity to directly talk to the government or ability to talk to the government and sort of make their case. And the huge significance of immigration decisions to the lives of those wanting to live or work here is not lost on Nikki Kay. She says she's well aware of the responsibilities of her role. I do consider that this is a huge privilege to be the Associate Minister. I do understand the weight of responsibility with this role because sometimes you know, I'm fundamentally changing the course of someone's life uh, with a decision like this. I think overall the system is reasonably transparent but leads to robust decisions. That doesn't mean we can't do better. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. 
I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Teresa Cowie and Simon Dickinson with technical production by Jeremy Veal.